Welcome to the Spectrum Lounge podcast, where we discuss creatives of color changing the game in TV, film, and pop culture. I am your host, Rebecca Theodore Vachon, and on this episode, I am joined by Felissa Thompson, social worker, disability consultant, and founder of Ramp Your Voice, as we discuss the themes of grief and trauma in Marvel Studios' Wakanda Forever and the horror thriller, Smile. Hey, Felissa, welcome back to the Spectrum Lounge. Hey, Rebecca, it's so good to be back. Thank you for having me. I'm very excited. And so um, I'm so glad that you reached out to me. I think it was a couple of weeks ago where you were like, hey, maybe we should, you know, I would love to talk about the themes of grief and trauma in Wakanda Forever. And I was like, yes, <laughs> let's do that. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Um, if, if anyone, we, uh, Valissa um, had been on the uh, Spectrum Lounge back in 2020. We had done an episode on the stream, on the themes of generational trauma um, in Lovecraft Country. And so that was a that was a great discussion. So I'm sure we'll have a lot to dig into. Yeah, so Wakanda Forever, second week in theaters, I think going on week three. Um, and, you know, for context, we know that the lead actor, Chadwick Boseman, who played T'Challa and Black Panther, passed away, unfortunately, um, yes. you know, after battling colon cancer. And so they had to, they, they had a script for the original Black Panther to, um, and they basically had to throw it away. And Ryan Coogler and uh, the co-screenwriter, Joe Robert Cole, had to come up with a whole new brand new story um, for this sequel. And, you know, of course, there there were a lot of feelings about whether they should cast T'Challa. Uh, Ryan Coogler and the executives at Marvel Studios came to the decision that they were not going to recast. And so therefore, uh, T'Challa, they also wrote that T'Challa uh, passed away on on, on screen. So the, that's what the movie opens with. We right. basically see Shuri rushing to find a cure for an unknown illness, right? And I'm like, wow, okay, that's pretty timely, yes. <laughs> right? Yes. We're, we're right under COVID. And unfortunately, uh, we see, T'Challa dies off screen. And so there's this huge funeral. And basically, Wakanda Forever is really about what, the nation of Nukon and also how his loved ones and his family um, have to go on without him. So I just wanted to start with you. Like, what were your thoughts as how they handled the themes of, of, of grief and, and trauma in Wakanda forever? I really like how they didn't beat around the bush about, you know, the obvious death. Mm-hmm you know, of the Black Panther. And I did like how they connected it somewhat to an illness, you know, with Chad having cancer, things that nature. So I really liked that connection in a way. Mm-hmm. So I just glad that it just wasn't um, drug on in the movie. We had just right off the gate, mm-hmm. you know, we see that a tragedy has happened. We see them mourning, you know, we see them doing a whole, you know, rituals, you know, honoring, you know, his death. Mm-hmm. And what really struck me was just how real those scenes were. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, when you have death scenes in movies or TV, you know, the cast, you know, they have the emotions of it, you know, to where it feels real. But this right here felt realer than real. Like, the the sadness, you know, just the, the hurt. You could just feel it on everybody's faces, yeah. you know, in the mm-hmm. words and the body language. And you know that this was a real scene 
that this wasn't just acting. Like they were really mourning Chadwick in that moment. You know, of course, you know, you know, it was his character, but it was really about Chadwick in that moment. And it was so heavy, but also done beautifully. Mm. You know, and yeah, I just love that. I just love how it was the most probably realistic death and funeral scene I have seen in a while. Yeah, yeah. It's um I said this in the in the podcast before when I reviewed Wakanda Forever is that I think part of the viewing experience for a lot of people going to see this movie is that we aren't the same people, right? Yeah. Like personally, nationally, like we're right. living under a pandemic where we saw a million people die. Yeah. Globally, right? And still dying. And still and still dying. Thank still you. Dying. And there's no post pandemic here. Like no. we're like we're about to go into the winter. We're about to be hit with COVID and the flu. Yeah. And then what is that? RSV? Is yep. that the thing that they found? And I mean, not in addition to the global pandemic, um, police brutality, seeing yeah. videos of George Floyd and just, um, you know, Breonna Taylor. Like it was just, you know, and then the BLM protests and then being sequestered and, and being separated from our loved ones and family. And so I feel like we're just, like down to like a molecular level, we're just different as black people in this country. We're just different, you know? So we are. And yeah. So I feel like we were coming into that movie with our respective grief and trauma, you know? Oh, definitely. And just to, you know, kind of add on to that, just realizing, you know, the heaviness of this time, you know, people have not been given a space to grieve, you know, yeah. it's the return back to work. You know, work hustle and all that BS that folks trying to do. And realizing that people are really hurting. You know, people are not okay by many means. You know, some of the things you listed with the summer uprisings of 2020 alone, that really shook a lot of people, you know, in ways of seeing George Floyd's death. We had Breonna Taylor, you know, all around that time. And, you know, people are changed and we don't as a society give room to recognize those changes and what that means for people's ability to be present, to feel, to feel loved, to feel protected, to feel safe. You know, we just had, you know, at the time of recording another, you know, shooting at a gay, at a gay club. Yep. You know, like it's constant. And then like what earlier, like the other week, we had the three football players who were shot, you know, at the University of Virginia. Like, it's always some type of tragedy that we're holding, and it's never ending. It's never ending on top of just regular life stuff, much less the things you may see in the news. Regular right. life stuff, along with the pandemic of, you know, being a disabled person. I know I'm, you know, working on a piece about how do you function as a disabled person when everybody else is trying to be back to normal, and you know there is no normal. You know, you know, and the realities of realizing that some of us are very isolated. You know, we were already isolated before, but these last particularly two years have been so isolating yeah. on top of that. And then kind of going back to the film, you know, us being forever changed by not being able to see Chadwick in his role anymore. Like, I still remember that night when the news about him 
came about. And I didn't want to believe it at first. I was like, what is this? Like, Chadwick Boseman dead? Like, what's going on? And then the shock. I don't think a death, a celebrity death like that hit me as hard in a long time. Agree. So culturally, we are not the same either because Chadwick meant so much to us. Like, just the excitement of 2018 when that movie came out and everybody <laughs> making him do the salute. You know, you seeing him, you know, out there and to realize that we would never have that again. Like, I didn't, it was heartbreaking and it's just in the matter of four years, it's just so much has changed with this cast and just with us as a people and a society. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was like, I was watching that movie. Like I braced myself. Cause I was like, yeah. first we knew that they were going to write him out and that he was going to die on screen. I don't think that was a, a spoiler, but it's, it didn't make it any less sad or any less, um, you know, like with the funeral scene. I mean, that funeral scene was just shot so beautifully. It was. The, it was. the costumes. And like you said, like, I don't think they were acting. Like, I think no. that was really them. Like, the part that broke me was when Shuri puts her hand over T'Challa's casket. And then she yeah. just breaks down. Yeah. You know, because up until then, I, I feel like she was there. She was trying to be strong for her mother. Right. She was trying to be strong for Ramonda. And then it's just idea, like, that was her big brother. Because we saw, like... And I think that was one that was definitely Letitia on a real life level. Oh, yeah. She and Wick were, were very, very, very close. And so that came through in their performances from the first Black Panther. Like, I totally, I love their relationship as brother and sister. Yeah. Um, and then for her to realize, like, wow, he's not here anymore. So when she broke down, I was just like, I don't, I don't know how much of that was acting or if that was, you know, actually Letitia, but it was, it was heartbreaking. It was. You know? Yeah, nonetheless. And so so let's talk about because when we so after um, the, the there's a time jump of a year after. Right. Mm -hmm. But what's interesting is to see like how T'Challa's death has like changed each of the characters. So I guess we'll, we'll start with Ramonda, because with Ramonda, I felt like there were certain decisions and things that she did in the movie that I felt that she was coming out of, that were coming out of a trauma response. You know, like, of course, she she's the queen and now she is on the throne, right? Now she's lost her, she's lost her husband and she's lost her son. So now she has to step into this leadership role. Um, and then, like, how do you balance that with, with, with leading a nation, with, like, still being a mother to your surviving child and then also having to deal with her personal grief like how do you how did you feel that they handled Ramonda's storyline I think honestly I feel like she represents what black women do mm. black mm -hmm. women are still no matter the pain that we're holding yeah they have to show up and that's just how I looked at her like she is a mother she lost a husband she was a wife who lost a husband and now she lost a son but she's still showing up doing what she had to do. People still had expectations of her. And it made me think about when did she have the time to break down and grieve? Mm -hmm. Who was there for her? If anyone was. Because she was the queen. Wow. Now, you know, who could be there for the queen? I'm trying to remember in the movie who, who that was. I don't know. I don't really no. have the answer for that. No. You know, because, you know, as any mother, I would imagine, she wouldn't want Shuri to worry about her. Mm -hmm. You know, our parents, you know, 
most parents don't want their children to worry about them. Like she's not going to cry to Shuri. Yeah. You know, about her brother. Mm-hmm. But who who is going to comfort the queen in her moment? You know, so that so for me, she just represents what black women have to do when we have such significant indescribable pain that we go on that journey alone. And I think that to what you said, some of our actions and behaviors mm-hmm. is impacted by that trauma because grief is traumatic. You know, and I think that's something that we don't fully recognize is that grief is another form of trauma. Mm-hmm. And I just think that some of her actions in the movie, I know we'll get to it a little bit later on, like, you know, when it comes to her own death, you know, what's to me attributed to her grief and in so many ways. I just, I just felt for her. Like when, you know, when she went from the UN council, you know, it was like, what, what more do I have to give? Mm-hmm. You know, I have lost everything. Right. Like that scene, let me say Angela Bassett, if she don't get awards, isn't yeah. that scene. Yeah. Well, what's interesting is like that speech that she gave, but like, haven't I given everything? So what was interesting was like, because you and I had both commented on it on Twitter when the first trailer for Wakanda Forever came out, um, which was, you know, that was the same weekend as Comic-Con. Right. And so we saw the trailer. And so the way that and see, this is why I forget the the people that actually cut the producers that actually cut the trailer. They're on Wakanda. They're on Twitter. And I'm like, you guys deserve a freaking Oscar. Because it was sort of a misdirection, right? Because we thought that she, when she made that powerful speech, like, haven't I, I'm thinking she's talking to like, you know, this United Nations Council and then come to find out, no, she's talking to Okoye, right? Like, and I was like, oh, okay, this is totally different. That's not what happened. So, so what it does is when you actually see her giving that speech and seeing who she actually directed it to, the whole context of that speech while still powerful, it did kind of change it a little bit because now she's talking to another black woman. She's talking to Okoye, right. who I think, I feel like Ramonda and Okoye had sort of a close relationship, but there was still some unresolved trauma from the first Black Panther, right? I- I'll let you talk about that because I-, I just thought that that scene was yeah, how- I just, yeah. I just feel that Sometimes I feel that with trauma, a response like that can be directed to someone whom you want to blame. It's easy to blame her for something instead of realizing that what happened is out completely out of your control. Yeah. You know, and I just felt that in that moment, <laughs> you know, she directed it to someone. It was a person that she could really get into it, you know, deeply. And that was it. Like, that was her dumping her trauma in that way. And was it fair? You know, you can judge for yourself, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? But mm-hmm. the reaction of receiving that trauma was so significant. Ooh, boy. Oh, Danae Guerrero, like, her face, like, like she just looks so devastated. Like, because she was already coming in, like, just for context, Shuri and Riri had been taken by the Talakan. And yes. so now... Okoye had to come back because, you know, she's the leader of the Dora Milaje. She had been on that mission with um, Shuri. And now she has to come back and tell the queen and the mother, oh, I lost your child. (laughs) 
And and what the, the, the twist in it was, Okoye was the one who insisted that Shuri come on this mission. Now, I, I don't think there was any malice no. on Okoye's side. I think she saw that Shuri was was grieving because she was just, you know, kind of locked herself into in um, you know, in her science lab. And I think Okoye was just like, I think this trip will be good for her, just to give her some purpose, just to to get out or whatever. And plus, I think she actually respects Shuri's intellect. Um, so I don't think I think Okoye was definitely coming from a space of good intentions. Oh yes. But again, yes. now you have to come back to your queen because the relationship is con- is is complicated because in a way, like, you know, yes, she has this close relationship with Ramonda, but Ramonda is also her boss. <laughs> you know, like she's right. she's the queen. So that I just felt for her. I I guess you can talk about that. Like I was just feeling for a play so that yeah. and also if you think about Ramonda being told, I lost your child, like the fear. Mm-hmm. So that's a part of that trauma, mm-hmm. the fear, the fear mm-hmm. of I'm about to lose something else. Yep. Because you wanted to cheer her up and now she's in danger. So now I could be dealing with a third tragedy. Which was very likely, right? Yeah. So yeah. That her, yeah. you know, being hysterical or anything that that was a well-founded fear. Um but yeah, like that scene, like it was, I mean, here's the thing. Like when I look at the scene, I think two things are true, right? I think absolutely what you said as far as like the trauma response and the trauma dumping um, coming from Ramonda's side, right? But also the fact that like, if you watch Black Panther, I mean, Ramonda wasn't lying, right? What? Like when Killmonger won the challenge and they thought T'Challa had died, the Jor Milaje threw their support you know, behind Killmonger. And remember yeah. there was that that scene where um Okoye and um and Nakia, you know, had bumped into each other and Nakia was like, hey, we gotta get out of here, you know, because she yep. was, was like, you know, Killmonger's gonna come after us. And Okoye was like, I'm not going anywhere. And basically said, whoever is on that throne, that's who my loyalty lies to. So I'm sure Ramonda must have felt hurt because remember they had to go running to the, you know, the Jabari for yep. support. You know, and I'm sure I don't think that was anything. I don't think that was ever. I mean, I don't think it it wasn't it was it would have been off screen, but I don't think there was any on screen discussion, at least between Okoye and Ramonda. I don't know if they ever sat down and had time to talk about that. There was no happened, And then the blip happened and then half of Wakanda disappeared. Right. Right. <laughs> so. Right. There was no reconciliation about mm. what that was and what it meant mm-hmm. so that there could be better understanding. You know, right. and that's kind of created a perfect storm for this moment. Yeah. You know. Yeah. And, and I think that's a real moment. I think Ryan was just so smart in writing that is that I think what I liked about Wakanda Forever is that, you know, that now we're presented with this matriarchy, right? Like with women and and like these black women that are in these positions of power, right? Because you know how we always joke about how, oh, if black women ran the world and, you know, if women ran, black women ran the world, you know, like there'd there'd be like this this, uh, utopia and everything would be great. But I think Ryan was really making us think with that, like like even as women, we are flawed. We're human beings. and We're going to make mistakes. Yeah, like that, like to me, that's the real equality, right? Like, there's this thing that's called uh, benevolent sexism, right? Where it's this idea where people think like coming from the man's point of view where men, you know, they 
kind of see women as equal, but not. So what they do is they either infantilize us or they put us on a pedestal where they're just like, oh, women are better at X, Y, Z. Women are, are so much better than us than this. They're, they're much better at communication. They're much better at mothering. They're much better. But it really doesn't, um, it doesn't really, it kind of robs us of our, of our humanity in a way, right? Yeah. Because what it does is it, it at least for me speaking as a Black woman, I'm sure you, I, I would love to hear your point of view, is I feel like there's a certain pressure as Black women to be perfect. It, it it like the like this 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 thing of like uh protect black women and this and that like on one hand it sounds good but then like when you really think down to it it all of these things are on the condition that black women have to come from a certain script we have to read from a perfect script that we can only get that support we can only get that love if we are absolutely perfect you know and and there's there's no space for us to be flawed and human yes. I, I would love to hear your Yes. And on the flip side of that, for black women who are harmful, how do we call that out without looking like we're not supportive of black women? Because that's the flip side of it. We either have yeah. to be perfect mm -hmm. or if we're horrifically not, mm -hmm. who is going to be brave enough to say this is a trash black woman? <laughs> like, I'm just going to keep yeah. it real. Who's going yeah. to say that right. without right. looking a certain way? Yeah. Well, I'll give you I'll give you a perfect example of that. Like we're we're both um, we're both um, witnessing this in real time. Right. right. Like Kelly Rowland. Yes. Right. A former member mm -hmm. of Destiny's Child. Mm -hmm. What was interesting was like just last week she was on a show uh, being interviewed by Rosenberg, this uh, New York. Uh, he's with Hot 97 radio station. And it was this really embarrassing on his part where he was basically telling Kelly Rowland, like, how does it feel to be number two to Beyonce? How does it oh. feel? To, like, just really condescending and gross and very anti-Black women. I, I'll let's just oh, yeah. keep it fun. Um, And, you know, God bless Kelly Rowland. She was just very graceful in her response. You know, Loki called him dim and was like, I don't, she was like, my Beyonce shine doesn't diminish my shine. Like, we shine together, right? So it was like this very pro-Black woman message Fast forward to Sunday night. Yes. <laughs> yes. When she accepted the award for Chris Brown, because I think he won the award for like male best uh, best male R and B artist, and then um, he wasn't there. Kelly went to get the award on his behalf. All right, well, she read it. She was like, "I'm accepting the award on his behalf." And then I think maybe there were some people in the audience that were booing. Yeah, I watched it live. So yeah, there were some very strong reactions Listen. to him winning. And she was like, "Calm it down," you know, like, yeah. yeah. So there's there's definitely a feeling of like, "Damn, Kelly, we were just defending you like five days ago. Like, why are you like you know going up for this abuser or whatever?" At least these are the discussions that's going on. So when you were talking, like, that's exactly the first thing that popped into my head, like. Like, like there's like, how can we be supportive of black women? Because we know that black women, we are judged by a whole yes. different set of standards, right? But at the same time, like you said, if we do something problematic or something, display some trash behavior, how do we call in our own without being, without enacting misogyny, right? Right. right. Yeah. But I think that's a perfect example of, you know, in one way, um, Beyonce said, you know, Monday I'm already Tuesday on my dick. You know, it's like one day you supported me and then because I have a mishap, 
mm-hmm. you know, you throwing me under the bus. Yeah. And like, that's the way that black women are treated. We are not given grace at all. Like, you know, I saw that. I saw, like I said, I saw that live. Her doing, that. I'm like, mm, that's not gonna be good. <laughs> you know, I already knew the reactions online, and probably like not an hour. Yeah. After that, it was like it was all like, Kelly did what? I'm like, here we go. Right. Here we go. But right. like, I couldn't imagine. Mm-hmm. I put myself in Kelly's shoes. Yes. Stuck in the war on somebody's behalf who's not there, and then you receive all these reactions. I don't know how I would react. It may have nothing to do with Chris. It may have been like, whoa, what is going on here? Mm-hmm. You know, like we don't, because that was live, we have a live audience, live reactions. We don't know what Kelly's, you know, automatic response could have been, you know, right. and wanted to not be booed at. Like she was booed at, even though we knew what they were doing, but it was directed to her because she made the announcement that Chris won the award. Oh, so, I see. I see what you're saying. I see right. What saying. So it's mm-hmm. like, sometimes we have to, pause and think about how would you respond in that moment? Because I don't know how I would feel if a whole bunch of people booed at me and I was just announcing the winner. I don't know how I would respond. I don't, I would hope that I would respond in a way that I could save face, but I right. just don't know like sometimes I guess for me, I always try to put myself in the position of that person and that's kind of how I saw it with Kelly. I'm not excusing her. I don't really have an opinion either way of her response. So we all know Chris Brown is trash. Let's like keep it real. But but I also realized that these are celebrities. These are also their friends. And that may, you know, like, so it could be the other side too, but I don't care enough to have an opinion either way. Mm. So so bringing it back to Wakanda Forever, so like what you said, I think about, you know, again, that that, that interaction between Ramonda and Okoye, Mm -hmm. like, it like from Akoya's point of view, she didn't think she did anything wrong. Right? No. She was like, I was I was raised and trained to be a Dora. Like this yes. the, this is what Doras do, right? Yes. Like we protect the throne. Whoever, you know, whatever. Like she's coming from her perspective. She was like, I did what I was supposed to do. Whereas Ramonda was like, but I felt betrayed by that, <laughs> right? Because yes. you had, you know, you because I'm pretty sure she was a Dora while T'Chaka was on the on the throne up right. until his uh, you know his execution and that or his assassination and then going to Sachala and then you know what I mean like this is someone I'm sure she had access to the family in a way that most people didn't have and so for Romana that felt like a personal betrayal right yeah. Yeah. so they're both coming from you know their respective uh, perspectives they are and I think that for me with Ramonda she was like you all you had one job which is to protect my children you know, like that was basically the energy. Like you had one job, mm-hmm. and look, look what you done. Like a second time. Mm. Oh wow, wow! A second time. Yeah, you had one job to protect my children or to be on their side, and you failed again. And now I only got one child left. So I, I'm, I'm pretty sure, like for Ramonda, like I forget what the term is, but like with people who 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 have PTSD, they're like, there's yes. like a, a, a thing where you're having like flashbacks, right? Mm-hmm. Where like, mm-hmm. like you actually feel like you're in the moment. So I'm yeah. like, for me, I'm trying to be in Ramonda's head that moment. Yeah. I'm sure she was kind of flashbacking to like that waterfall scene when Killmonger threw T'Challa, you know, over the thing and then, the, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. I think all of these things and then 
like everything was just hitting her at once and then losing her husband. Like I'm sure all of these things were hitting her at once. And then, you know, that was it. it. Yeah, that was it. Like she was just in her moment. She was in that moment of whatever that she was feeling or remembering. That was the moment. That was her moment. Right. So let's talk about, um, We'll, we'll, we'll talk about Nakia. And I, I think what's interesting about Nakia is that, I mean, of course, I wish she, she had more screen time. But um, when we watched the movie, we know that she had been away. She wasn't there for the funeral. Um, right. She doesn't come into the movie until Ramonda seeks her out to try to, you know, to, to rescue Curry because we know that, um, you know, Nakia is like this very experienced war dog, you know, operative. And if anybody could find Shuri, it's going to be Nakia. But then we like with Nakia's story. I wish we had more time to hold that. But I know Ryan. There was a lot of storytelling that Ryan had to tell. But I, you know, we find out at the end. Um, again, Nakia had been gone for five years. Wasn't there at the funeral? Uh, you know, I'm sure people were like, "Where is Nakia?" And then we find out that the reason that she had been away is because she actually had a child with T'Challa, and then she and T'Challa had come to the mutual agreement that they did not want their son. His name is. Toussaint, and then he's actually his Wakanda name is T'Challa, so he's like T'Challa the second. Um, but they made this decision as the parents that they did not want Toussaint to have this pressure, right? And so that's why she had been away. And I just always think of like I try to think like how difficult that must have been for her um, to not be there when he died. Number one, number two, now you're raising this child without the father like and like where like i think we kind of we get an idea of how nakia worked her grief out because we know that she's somebody who's very empathetic she's somebody that that has a lot of empathy and is somebody who isn't like she's not through the lens of just wakandan loyalty but she was like you know the whole every black person is is my person right? right Um, and so for her working in Haiti, you know, running the school, I, I'm guessing maybe that was her way of, um, dealing with the trauma. What, what, what did you think? I just, I think when we saw the end and seeing the sun, my heart was like, you know, to have a child who, you know, would not be able to be with his father anymore. I just, so many feelings on that, you know, and to have to still show up again, black women still showing up, no matter the circumstances, you know, and to be a mom and to not be there, you know, to love a man and to not be there. Like, let's think about this love part here. You know, you love someone and you couldn't be there to pay your own respect. You know, it makes me wonder, does she have any form of trauma not being able to say her her goodbye in her own way? Mm-hmm. You know, and then how did she explain that to their son? Right. You know, I just, like, with her, it, it feels so complex. It feels so complex. But also in seeing her be like, I think she's like the, the headmistress of that school showing love to the fellow students, you know, still being able to be that empathetic person, to be that loving, warm person in this way, but also being isolated from a world 
you know, that you could get more support of, but you probably needed to be separated from at the same time. You know, you wonder like how lonely was she mm. in being away from Wakanda, but maybe knowing that she needed to be away. Right. Yeah. It was interesting because my friend at Jerry Barrow, when we talked about Wakanda forever, he was like, you know, when you think about it, like um, Nakia's decision, like her way of like being in Haiti was like, that's who she is. Because even from the first Black Panther, like it seems like um, to me, um, if it feels like Nakia definitely has feelings about the monarchy. Mm-hmm. She has certain feelings because remember in the first Black Panther, you know, uh, T'Challa was like, you know, I, I want you to be queen. And right. she was like, ah, if I do choose, that like that wasn't her thing she was like that like he was feeling like you sitting on the throne that's how we're going to help our people but nakia was like no like she's she's sort of like a a missionary of sorts like like she basically has a like a passion right for non-wakandan blacks and she was like you know because we've been in the shadows and we kind of did nothing right like we didn't intercede or, you know, to help our other black brothers and sisters, she was like, like, this is my ministry. That's the word I want to look for. Like, that is Nakia's ministry. Nakia's yeah. ministry is to like create like this pan-African bridge between, you know, the Wakandans and Brazilian uh, black people and American black people and European black people. Like for her, like that's the family. Like for her, Wakanda is not just limited to that land. It's everywhere. You know, and so I, I, it, it was very interesting to kind of see like, like for her, for her son, I don't think she wants that, you know, like she was like, I don't, I don't want him to have that pressure um, of like being the next king T'Challa or whatever. I think she wants him. And what's interesting is that he, at least for me, is that, and this is my opinion, is that I feel like T'Challa, uh, T'Challa Jr., T'Challa the second if he does decide that he wants to claim the throne when he's an adult, he's going to be a very different kind oh, of yeah. king Wakanda because he's not raised in, while his, his his parents, he's a full-blooded Wakandan. This is, a, this, he's going to see the world, yeah. you know, like he's grown up in Haiti and I'm sure Nikki will probably take him to other parts of the world. So I feel like with that kind of education coming back in Wakanda, I think what it is, is he's going to be probably one of the greatest leaders that they've ever had because he's bringing in a whole different, you know, T'Challa had started to do that, you know, right. before he passed away. But I think T'Challa the second, especially with Nakia being his mother, I feel like he's going to bring a whole different perspective, at least for the generation of Wakandas that are going to grow up under him. It's going to be a little bit different. Yeah. And I think that kind of going back to Nakia, mm-hmm. I think she represented women who don't want to give up what they love. Mm. or what their significant other wants them to do. Yes. I think that's, I think that's for me what she represents. She represents someone who's independent-minded and who knows her mission, like you were saying. Yeah. And I may love you, but I'm not giving this up for you. And you have to love me enough to know why this matters and to let me be my full self. That's, yeah. 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 You know, and so I think that, you know, in raising their son, he gets to see his mother be her full self and not just be number two as a woman. You know, and that's going to shape his viewpoint as well as to the power of women. And of course, and also in what you were saying, in being worldly, 
and seeing conditions that, you know, his father may have been shielded from. You know, you're royalty. You're not going to see destitute situations. You're not going to see suffering. You're not going to see people being hurt. And yeah. most likely with Nakia's, in some way, missionary viewpoint of, you know, truly embodying, I'm rooting for everybody Black, he's going to know the realities of Black people across the diaspora in different parts of the world that his yeah. father didn't know. You know, so I think that's, you know, to the point you're making, it's going to be something that he will bring into this role if he decides to be uh, the Black Panther. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So one, one more point. So speaking of death, I mean, we do know that halfway through the movie, um, Ramonda <sighs> dies. Like I, like I, yeah, I was not ready. I was not ready. How do you feel about that? I was like, oh, Ryan. Oh, <laughs> man. First, it hurt. <laughs> it hurt. I was like, what? Huh? That was my. Re- I was like, man. I like Ryan. You really did this to us, man. I thought we was cool. Thought we we already dealing with one heartache. You gonna give us two? Yeah, you know. Yeah. But but I think that when I had time to sit with it, Ramonda, she just represented what mothers do. She couldn't save her own child. She saved yeah, somebody. She died else. saving. Really? Yeah. Right. She couldn't save her own child, but she died saving someone else's. Mm-hmm. A black American girl at that. Thank you. I was thinking- like. I was like, thinking, who is going to give up their life for a black American girl? Not many. Yeah. But a mother, a mother who has lost a child, man. Yeah. There, yeah. There's significance. I love that you're saying that because I think there's a specific significance to that. Because, like, yeah. you know, even from the first Black Panther, I mean, like, like we can be honest, right? Like you said, like, you know, black women, as like, we're flawed, we're not all perfect. Um, you know, like, like Ramonda definitely had some feeling about non-Wakandan black people, right? Oh, yeah. um, oh, yeah. and, and that's coming from the Wakandan society. They're kind of like eh, outsiders. They're uppity, they're uppity, you know, they're yeah, you know, and so it was like there was definitely, but I feel like the, the you know, by giving her life up to save, like you said, a black American woman, like it felt like she had come full circle. Yeah. Like she fin- like she finally got it. I mean it, yeah. it came at the expense of her. But I feel like there there was something very poetic in that. In the fact that this she's not of royal blood. She's not Wakandan. She's not my daughter. But she she saw Riri's worth. Yeah. Right? Like like this is like she saw like that could be my daughter. Because yeah. much like Shuri, uh, Riri is like this brilliant scientist or whatever. So I felt like she was starting, I think uh, Ramonda was finally beginning to understand what Nakia is fighting for. She was beginning to understand. And I think just even coming to Haiti yeah. to go meet Ramon, you know, to meet Nakia, I mean, we didn't see it on screen, but I'm sure Nakia probably gave her a tour, like, mm-hmm. you know, because we know that Haiti is, is you know, one of the poorest countries. Right. And that's not by accident, right? No, like, it's not. It's like, by design. Yeah, like Haiti led like the like the first successful slave result revolt yes. they were you know oppressed by the french and they revolted with nothing but like conch shells and machetes <laughs> right. they didn't have guns you know what i mean and they kicked the french out 
But then the French were like, oh, but okay, you want your freedom? Well, you have to pay us. So they, I think Haiti was paying, I think when you adjust it, it's like something billion dollars. Yeah. That's why That's why Haiti is not, it's not that we're a poor country or we're stupid, we're dumb. No, it's mm. like the Bressler had the boot on our neck. Like we're still paying for our freedom, which is so effed up. But I think that there's something really interesting about the fact, like the fact that out of all the countries that Ryan could have picked, I love that he picked Haiti. Yeah, I did because too. There's so, yeah, there's so much symbolism in there. And it's, it's perfect like, for someone like Nakia. Yeah. Like, of course, Haiti, Haiti would be somewhere that she would go. Yes. I agree she with wasn't that. in Wakanda. I agree with that. You know, and then I think for for um, Ramonda, I'm sure she probably was showing her the school and the children. I think Ramonda was beginning to understand, right, like where Wakanda should stand in. You know, when we're talking about geopolitics, like where does Wakanda? It for them, it was just a matter of like we just need to protect the vibranium. We need to protect the vibranium. We're the most powerful country in the world but like okay so you're like the most powerful but you you know but people who look like you are suffering right which was yeah. what Killmonger said which was true um but yeah I think the fact that she gave her life to save uh Riri that was big but and this is what I want to ask you when we talk about not having closure right mm-hmm. um the same way that uh Nakia didn't get to say goodbye to Chichala, at least not physically, like she right. didn't get to die. This I like it it killed me not not only seeing Ramonda die on screen, but then when Akwe saw her and was trying to, you know, and did like CPR and everything and right. tried to bring her back to life and she called her mother. Yes. That broke me. I was just like, you know what I mean? And just knowing that the last exchange that Okoye and Ramonda had was that. And, and that's another failure. She couldn't bring her back. Yeah. That's the third failure. She could not save her. Yeah. That's that's a that's a tough one because I'm sure she was like, you know, I wish I could because I'm sure at some point I think Ramonda would have apologized to her. I think Ramonda yeah. would see. You know yeah. what I mean? That would have been some reconciliation at some point. Yeah. Yeah. But then you don't have that. And that's another tenet of grief when you lose the loved one is like you sometimes you don't get you don't get the Hollywood goodbyes where oh. everybody's at their bedside. Sometimes it's as simple as the person just goes to work and just doesn't come back. Yeah. Yeah. And then what do you do with that, you know, that gap, you yeah. know, in yeah. that connection? Because there's a gap there now, you know, and I just there's just so many things when it comes to grief, death and dying, loss. That Ryan and them just personified in a way that you don't see, particularly because of Black people. You right. don't see these complexities handled in a way that has care and nuance. You know, that feels so real. You know, that, you know, so I just really love how he did that. But going to Ramonda, I just, I just feel like she just did what a mother does. Like, I just really saw that act of her saving Riri as what a mother does. Whether it's your child or somebody else's child. If you see somebody, young child like that, you know, like Riri is a young, young adult. You see someone's child in danger, you act on it. And I just think that if she was to die, she died a hero. But just this idea, I think that people have this 
expectation of um, Wakanda or the Black Panther franchise, it, it's supposed to rep, it's supposed to represent this Black or African utopia, right? But at least for me, the way that I interpreted Wakanda Forever, and again, you know, with Ryan Cooler and Joe Edward and the cast coming in with all this grief, I, like I look at Wakanda Forever as more as a more more of a dystopic. It's more of a dystopic tale, right? It's more like a cautionary tale of like this is what happens, right? Um, because I think. Yes, with the first Black Panther, there was sort of like this utopian feeling, you know, with Chadwick and everything. And now with Chadwick gone, right? Like, it, it, it's sort of like the utopia shattered. And so I feel like that's kind of reflected in the movie. Does, does that make sense? It does. And I think it shows that life isn't perfect. You know, no matter how hard you try to keep things contained, something always unexpected is going to happen. And if you try to keep everything under wraps, keep things orderly, whatever this disruption is, it's going to be so profound. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what we see there. And also, the focus view of utopia, you know, like, that's not realistic. (laughs) Like, this is not (laughs) realistic. You know, like, if you're a human, unless you are a god, if you are a human, you are going to suffer. I don't care if you live on the perfect in the perfect country. Your suffering is going to find you. That's yeah. part of the human experience. I know that's not something you want to think about, but suffering mm-hmm. is a part of being human. Right. And Wakanda is not immune to that or from that. And we have mm. seen the shattering of Wakanda's innocence mm. and the protective nature of it with these deaths, with the invasion of Namor and his people, we've seen this utopia be upended. Right. And not having to be restructured. Mm-hmm. You know, and and figure out who are we? Right. In this world of people trying to invade us, whether it's, you know, the colonizers wanting our vibranium to us setting off you know, this now arch enemy that we have. Mm-hmm. How do we show up in this way? You know, because I think that I know it wasn't a morning scene, but just seeing the destruction of Wakanda, mm-hmm. you know, was very hard. You know, to see this, yeah. to see the land, the flooding and the land and everything like that, it was like, oh my gosh, you know. Mm-hmm. And people, were, people being, were saying that there were there were kind of like uh, it was sort of like a parallel to Katrina. I didn't I hadn't thought of that. <laughs> yeah, like it, it it I can definitely see see you thinking about that like in that way. Yeah, mm-hmm. I can see that. I can see that. You know, it just I don't know. I think that we also as a people, as Black folks, I know I know we have this desire for a utopia because of who we are. Yes, and I understand. We want a place where we can be safe, mm-hmm. where we are valued. So I get the the urge to uphold Wakanda in such a light, mm-hmm. you know, as a people, because because we have never felt a Wakanda, you know, we never felt this perfect nation of Black people, you know, mm-hmm. being powerful and you know having their own and not having to deal with the white gaze or 
having to deal with colonizers or being colonized and anything like that. Like I understand that too, but when you are surrounded by all of these ills of the world, you know, a place like Wakanda is going to be impacted in some way, shape, or form, eventually. Yeah. It's not going to be immune forever. I definitely want to, just expanding on these themes of grief and trauma, um, there is a horror thriller by the title of Smile. Um, it was it was released in theaters back in September. It's actually one of the highest grossing horror movies of 2022. It's written and directed by Parker Finn. Um, and basically, the uh, we have this uh, psychologist named Rose. She works at a hospital, um, and she has an interaction with a patient where the patient basically commits suicide in front of her. But before that, something very supernatural happens. So we understand that that this this death or this suicide or what we think is a suicide, um, there are some supernatural aspects of it. So she witnesses this patient kill herself in front of her. And then now whatever the spirit or whatever is, is now haunting her. And the way that it appears is in a smile where you it'll just kind of settle on somebody's face. And it's almost like, but the smile is like so menacing. It looks like yes. a grimace almost. Yes. Um, and it was, I was just, I didn't get to see it in theaters. It's now on Paramount Plus. If you have a subscription, um, you can watch it. And I was just really um, impressed or blown away with how, because a lot of horror movies deal with trauma. That You know what I mean? Like that. that's one of the underlying themes. But I think the way that they approached it in this movie it was something that I could, I felt very connected to it. I felt very connected to it in a way. Just even the idea, like how you can make something as sweet and innocent as a smile, so freaking scary to me. <laughs> I was like, "Oh, MG, are you kidding me?" Um, and then to to see like roles, you know, start out as like this very caring and empathetic psychologist, and then she just starts spiraling. You yes. know, because now this thing is after her, and you know, as the audience, you're not sure if it's if it's in her mind. Like, is is this is this really like a supernatural presence, like a malevolent presence, or is this in her mind? We're not really sure until we get to the end of the movie. Um, so I was like, I have to speak to Melissa about this movie because um, I do feel like that movie and and Wakanda Forever, as far as like how they handle grief, is is you know that I'm very interested in how they both handle that. So what did what did you think of Smile, and how did you feel that the filmmaker? What do you feel that, that he was saying about grief and trauma in this movie? Oh man, you know before we started recording, I was like, what the baby got me watching here? I'm like, oh my gosh. I was like, I'm not gonna lie to you. That's probably like one of the scarier things I have seen in a while. So yes. I, so it's very good to hear that it was high grossing because mm-hmm. it earned its dollars. Like I was like, oh my goodness, this is, this is a lot. Like there's some really good scary stuff here. And <laughs> yeah, like when they started to turn, when they started doing that, I'm like, oh shit, here we right. go. <laughs> I'm like, here we go. Here's somebody else, mm-hmm. you know, captivated by this spirit that's going around. Um, I really like the complexity of this grief that Rose has mm-hmm. kind of in a twofold because we're dealing with childhood trauma of watching her mother die and then she not do anything to save her because right. her mother, you know, for what we could glean was a monster to her. Mm-hmm. 
And and then what does that do when you have unresolved childhood trauma of that significance? Right. You know, because I think she witnessed her mother kill herself, right? Like yes. Her mother yes. Killed. It looked like she may have been under some substance or something that was going on with her mom. Mm-hmm. And and then you have that, you know, being you know, I think she was like what, like a child, like a teen, and like a um, ten or something like that. So being very young, witnessing that, not knowing what to do, and then that continues on as as an adult. And the interesting thing is her being a psychologist mm-hmm. and still holding that trauma in some way, shape, or form. And you would think someone of her educational background would be in a better situation of the complicated nature of that grief and to see that grief consume her in that way through these supernatural elements was just kind of wild to see, mm-hmm. you know? And it reminds me, you know, being a social worker, how so many folks come into a lot of these fields wanting to help people because mm-hmm. we know what kind of help we wish we had. But sometimes the helper needs to help too. Right. You know, and I know that Rose was in therapy, but it's like how much of that therapy was connected to her childhood grief of watching her mother die. Mm-hmm. You know, it just kind of brings me back to that, um, you know, of that storyline, just to see her making these connections about everyone else who was captivated by this supernatural spirit from her clients to other folks that she realized, you know, have also dealt with this, you know, to how it just really affected all of her relationships. Like, right. lost her current partner, you know, her job was like, no, you can't work here no more, you know, with your current condition. She just felt like no one saw what she did. This evilness. Yeah. You no. Know, um, I was like, wow, you know, I really was just really captivated by all the layers of what we were witnessing for almost two hours. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, the ending, it was like, wow, okay. (laughs) You know, um, it was just a lot, but in a, but in a lot, in a way that you don't really get to get with horror, you know, Mm -hmm. when it comes to grief like that. So I really like that they connected grief in this way, like what happens when you have unresolved grief and how does it manifest over time and come up in this very different way? Right. I think that was kind of the takeaway for me is like, why it's so important for people to be intentional about how they grieve and how they handle their grief, mm-hmm. you know, and also paying attention to, since Rose experiences as a child, children with grief, because we don't pay attention to children with grief. Um, yeah. How does that impact them as they go through their development of childhood, adolescence, and then adulthood? Right. Right. Because, I mean, that's the thing is like, and that's something that I'm learning <clears throat> being in therapy myself is like, um, and I don't think that it's like some new agey thing to say that like what we experience as children, right? Like how we're loved by our parents, like that shapes our relationship attachment styles. Yes. As adults. And that's that's something that I'm still trying to work through. It's like, well, I don't I don't think that I I certainly wasn't didn't I don't feel that I came from an abusive family, but I do feel that because of the 
gender roles that were assigned. Like my father, my mother was a stay at home mom and my dad was like, you know, the breadwinner, you know what I mean? So he was like the head of the family, like a very traditional West Indian type, type home, you know what I mean? And so I feel like the way as an adult, what I've realized, like in my relationships with men or whatever, it's not, I won't say that I have daddy issues, but because my father was someone who was emotionally distant, like he's not someone who actually, you know, would hug you or be like, I love you. Or like, my dad was not like that. You know, like he was very like, I pay the bills. I take you to church. My, like my father has literally said this. He was like, my job is to make sure you don't go to hell. You know what I mean? Cause my dad is a pastor <laughs> like that. That is his number one goal. So that means if you had to go to church four, five, six days a week, that's what you're doing, you know? But I never really had like an emotional relationship with my dad, you know? And then also the fact that I was the oldest, right? So then I was helping raise my younger siblings. And one of the things that I've learned in therapy is that I'm very hyper-dependent, hyper-independent. And it was explained to me that that usually people who are just like, I can do everything myself. I can do that to this point of hyper independence. That's usually coming from childhood where yeah. you felt like your needs weren't being met or you felt like you weren't being heard or you weren't being seen. And so you're like, well, I'll just, I'll just do it myself. Right. You know? And so that manifests into your thing. So that definitely like how your parents, the, the amount of affection that they show, um, you know, whether they use corporal punishment or not, like all of these things shape us as adults. Yeah. Yeah. It does. You know, and I think that sometimes we realize even if we haven't had extreme things happen to us, like with Rose, you know, in, in the movie, Mm -hmm. we are still getting messages about who we are, expectations of gender roles, expectation of us, you know, based on the birth order, you know, that we, you know, are in, you know, you were being the oldest, you know, of your siblings, you know, in the movie Rose was the youngest, you know, mm. and being alone, having to deal with whatever wrath or her mother put her through, you know, right. all those things impact the way that we view ourselves and our connections to ourselves and each other and in relationships. And, you know, even if you have the best childhood, there's still some things you probably still have to unlearn. Yes. You know, <laughs> you know, there's something that you still have to make right. sense of and also come to the reality that your parents are human and mm. they are doing the best that they can. I think we touched on this a little bit in the Lovecraft Country episode of they're mm-hmm. doing the best that they can, but that still does not excuse some of the things that happen to you. <laughs> you know, right. um, I know that with my with myself, mm-hmm. I was raised by my grandmother who, for me, was just perfect, you know, and my mother has her own discretions. Mm-hmm. I'll, put, I'll say it in that way. Right. When it comes to her mental health and how she engages with everybody. Mm-hmm. And so I kind of had that duality of having someone who was emotionally available, present, and stable mm-hmm. versus someone who was unpredictable. And having to navigate that and becoming older and better understanding my mother and who she is in connection to her mental health, to just learning little things about her childhood, like being a child of the 60s and 70s, having a mental illness that probably nobody suspected and 
being black and, you know, living in rural South Carolina, having mm. that empathy of that type of upbringing, yeah. but also not excusing behavior mm-hmm. and also not, you know, living with those complexities and holding it on my own. You right. know, in some ways that I think some of my family members do. And it really wasn't until for me, I got to grad school and started to learning more certain things that I started to release some of those things that as a family unit, we all kind of held because of my mother and releasing some of those things about her actions and behaviors. So it takes a lot of work when you're dealing with complex family dynamics of mm-hmm. unlearning, relearning, adjusting, and then coming anew as a person through all those stories and narratives that were thrusted upon you. Yeah. And you're finally realizing what is your narrative outside of those messages. Mm-hmm. And that's so important to try to capture um, when we think about, you know, who we are, how we became. Right. Right. Like, I, I remember there's a saying um, that someone said, I forget who said it, but I, I hear it a lot where they're like, the the hurt is not your fault, right? Yes. Like what happened isn't your fault, but the healing is absolutely your responsibility. Yes, yes, yes. And that, that's something that I've been wrestling with, you know, because um, I, I, you know, left a very traumatic relationship earlier this year. And there's as much as I've been like working on the healing, there's also a part of me that's just so angry. Mm-hmm. Like, like just like resentful that I'm the one that has to do the work. Right. Cause really whatever my partner did that, you know what I'm saying? Like that's on him. Then he takes, you know, I hold him accountable for that. But he, in my head, I'm like, oh, he just gets to go on and do whatever he wants. Like there's no accountability or whatever and yet like I'm the one that has to hold the pieces like I'm the one that has to do the work and the therapy and the and the meditation and I'm like I'm like no I like I don't have to but it's like but at the same time I realize like and I'm I'm definitely not saying that when bad things happen to you like oh it's a lesson and that it was it was meant to be I don't subscribe to any of that I just like you said life is just full of suffering like it it, things just happen to you it is what it is um, but just realizing that um, there's this meditation that I do for healing where they said that the through that pain and that grief, you are given an opportunity to reset, right? And that you can reimagine and rebuild your life the way that you want. And realizing like that is actually a gift, right? It is. Um, that, it's, that it's an actual gift that you get, that that healing space, it feels really uncomfortable like yeah. you just don't like it like i saw this um i actually sent this to my friend i just wanted to read it real quick um it was from alice walker um and it was something where she said um some periods of growth are so confusing that we don't even recognize we are growing we may feel hostile or angry or weepy and hysterical or we may feel depressed It would never occur to us unless we stumbled on a book or a person who explained to us that we are in fact in the process of change, of actually growing more than we have before. And I was like, okay, Alice. (laughs) You don't see it, like in the healing, it feels so messy. It's it's not like, it's absolutely not like the Hollywood movies where you get this montage 
of them going through a field or like going shopping and redoing their hair. No, it's messy and it's uncomfortable and it sucks. It does. <laughs> you know? Yeah, that's that's the thing. And it's like the question is like, are, do you, are you going to choose to participate in it or not? And I think with with smile, that is one of the things that they talk about. Like when you decide not to engage in that healing and messiness, like these are some of the things that can manifest. Does that, does that make any sense? Yes, it does. And I think that, you know, it kind of, you know, bringing it, that to, bringing it back to Wakanda forever, we see this with Shuri with deciding what way she's going to go. Is she going to go be like a Killmonger Jr. in a way? Mm-hmm. Or is she going to do, you know, what she knows she should do, like her brother would? Mm. You know, so we see that how grief can shape the way that we engage when we are wronged or in a very hard um, moment of trying to figure out what is the best solution to fix something. Um, I think that's something that I always thought about with uh, Shuri's character, like Mm -hmm. the way that she started to go, the route and the way that her grief and pain led her, and then the route she eventually took at the end, which was the route that we knew that she would get to eventually. Mm-hmm. And I think that show, you know, shows us with the way that pain and grief can, you know, take the wheel in the way that we figure out how do we heal, mm-hmm. and if we choose to, because yeah. healing is hard. It's it's difficult. It's challenging. And the thing is, you're never going to be done. That way mm. it's so messy. You're mm. never going to be done. Because it's always going to be a situation or a person or a circumstance that's going to scratch that trauma. Right. And you're going to be, in some ways, emotionally put back a little bit in that moment. And you are going to have to decide what you do. Yeah. And it's easier to stuff it down and ignore it versus always meeting it head on Mm -hmm. each time something comes up to where it needs to be addressed, whether big or small. And that's mm-hmm. what makes healing so, such a constant. People think, like, oh, I'm healed, I'm good. Like, no, you are always going to be healing. Just like with grief, you're always going to be grieving. It's just an evolution of your grief. It's just an evolution of the pain. And whether or not you have better control of it instead of it controlling you. The reason why I say this is that one of the themes in Smile is how the trauma is almost like infectious, right? Yeah. Like you, it, like the way that Rose witnessed this patient kill herself. And we find out that really it's not, they're not really, it's not them really committing suicide. It's the spirit that takes them over and does that to them, right? Once they give into it, let me say that. Um, and so what it does is it becomes infectious. So you witness this person um, dying with the spirit and then the spirit chases you. And then unless you kill somebody else, then that spirit is going to kill you. And it was really like that. That is how it can be. Like you can trigger people. Yes. Like your trauma can trigger other people. So people can unintentionally trigger us with their own trauma or drama or both. Of course, not intentionally and mm-hmm. definitely not maliciously, but it is on us to be aware of how much of someone's life do we want to get involved in and what does that look like for us when we have a very fresh 
trauma to go through. Was you recognizing that? And that's a part of the healing journey, like knowing how much you can handle. Like I know for me, December would be seven years since my grandmother died. Mm-hmm. And I know there's certain grief things I cannot handle. Mm-hmm. I know that's this show called, no, I think it's, yeah, I think it's a show called From Scratch that's on Netflix. Yes. I, yeah. I was oh. like, nope. I was like, mm-mm. Nope. Yeah. Nope. 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 <laughs> and I know it's good because people talk about it, but I'm like, mm-mm. I was like, they got people crying about it. I'm like, no, nope. that mm-hmm. is too much for me to deal with. So you got to know your limitations, even though it's seven years for me since her death, I know my limitations as to like how much grief storylines I can take in TV shows and movies. And even with Wakanda Forever, I was a little, I want, you know, I went because I wanted to support, but I was a little hesitant. I was like, I hope this ain't too bad. I'm like, hope it's not too bad. But luckily it wasn't. But it's just that self-awareness, you know, of how much can I hold with this very sensitive topic you know, mm-hmm. and whether it's incredibly raw or it may have its moments to where I may be more emotional than others, it's right. still my responsibility to know mm-hmm. how much I can hold and not to do more than that. Because that will compromise me and be unfair to what I am working towards in my healing and understanding. Right. So we all have to do that type of self-inventory mm-hmm. about what what do we have the realistic capacity to hold and what do we need to realistically back away from? Yeah. And stay yeah. true to that. Yeah. It's because it's sort of like, um, not the word bookmarks, but there's like, there's benchmarks, right? Yeah. Like yeah. you like grandmother's death that you're like, all right, around that time, like, okay, I know I'm going to be feeling a certain way. Yes. You know? And then, yeah, I, I totally agree with that. It's like um, having that self-awareness of like what you're, Weaknesses, I, I well, I won't say weaknesses, but like what your triggers are, like where you're you're tender. That's the word I'll yes. use. Yes, the like, tender. Mm-hmm. You kind of hurt you. Like, oh, don't touch that. That's a little, and it's okay. You know, like, what was interesting was like, I, like I saw some people on, you know, who went to see Wakanda forever, and they were like, well, I saw the movie and I didn't cry. I don't like. They were kind of like, I don't even understand like why you people were crying, and and that's fine. I mean, if you if it didn't hit you that way, that's fine. That doesn't make you less emotional it doesn't make you a monster or anything but like when you start bragging about it like a personality trait like that's not the movie like i said everybody like whatever movie it is whether it's smile or wakanda forever or from scratch or whatever there's always movies depending on where you are in your life or the things that you've experienced in your life you're gonna come at it at a certain way you're coming at it with those traumas and the grief and the triggers or whatever so just because you if, if somebody felt emotional watching a movie, let them have that. Exactly. Let them have that space. Like, I don't know why they were crying. Well, you don't know what their life is. Like, you could have somebody sitting next to you crying. And you're like, I don't know. Like, this movie's a comedy. Why are you crying? You don't know. You don't know. It may be that the actor looks a certain way, might remind them or something. Or it might be the locale that it's shot in. You just you just never know. Exactly. What will set you off. And yeah, like you want. And so going back to Smile, it was like, with Rose, like the, the idea that I got from her was sort of like she went into psychiatry to as a way to help other people, right? Like I saw like I saw how mental illness affected my mother and so I want to help people too. But I'm wondering if and I'd love to hear your 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 thoughts on this, is maybe also going into psychiatry was a way of it kind of formed as armor for her. 
too. Because you're like, if I can figure out, like sort of like, if I can figure out why this happens to this person mentally, like what is the cause, then maybe, because we know that mental illness can be um, hereditary too, maybe in a way it was a preventative measure for Rose as well, right? Like if, I, if I'm in this, if I'm in the field of psychiatry, like maybe it's a way of her self-monitoring herself. What, what, do you, what do you think? I think that, I think for me, Rose kind of did the thing to where they want to be. I think Rose wants to, in some way, be a savior. So she couldn't save her mom, maybe try to be a savior in another way. Um, you know, really, um, really do that. You know, they tried to cover up their pain by helping other people and that's not how you do your healing right you know that's not how you you can't you know you can't stuff down your pain and try to help someone else you mm-hmm. have to do what you can to take care of home you know healing starts at home Mm-hmm. You know, and I think that Rose um, had good intentions on being in her field. But you could tell when we saw the beginning how she really had a lot of empathy for her clients. But I think sometimes we can get so focused on helping other people mm-hmm. that we don't always help ourselves. Mm-hmm. And I see this like with some colleagues, you know, they come to the field, you know, particularly, particularly like black and brown folks um, come to like social work or anything like that. You're like, I know what it's like to not have support. You know, I was, you know, in foster care or, you know, I dealt with, you know, some other economic and, you know, societal struggle. And I want to make sure that it doesn't have happen to somebody else. And that is genuine, you know, and that is loving. But do we assess as to if that thing didn't happen to us, would we want to pursue that? If we had a different life trajectory, would that be our passion? Mm. And for some people, it may not be. And and I think that with Rose, and I'm kind of looking at it through my more so professional lens than through as a viewer, I just really saw her as being a testament as to people going to these fields with great intentions, but they still have this heaviness that doesn't leave them. And it will always come up eventually. You know, whether you have a client that may trigger you because of their story or their behaviors, or you see circumstances that's out of your control that no matter what you do, it won't get better, you know, or you get that savior complex of, I got to save everybody. And it's like, no, you're not there to save people. You're there to assist them on their journey. And you have to have to have the consciousness to know your um, position in their life, you know, because you are playing a small role in somebody's life. And you are, you know, if you're a therapist or a case manager, whatever, your role is to help them along their journey. You're not going to be there forever. So don't make yourself a fixture in that person's life. Make yourself, you know, a help in that person's life. Make yourself 
and aid in that person's life. Because it's about what they do with your support, not you directing them as to how they need to live their life and according to what you want them to do. Right. So Cause I think- I, in the, at one point in the movie, um, we understand that she's <clears throat> kind of overworked. At one yeah. point, her, her boss is like, listen, you're working like 60, 70 hours yeah. a week. That's like 60, like that's not like just an office job where you're sitting in front of a computer. No. You're dealing people with like mental health and challenges and illnesses. And it's like, she was already, I felt like at the time that we met her at the movie, it was like, she was already overwhelmed and had, yeah. it was probably way past her threshold. And so by the time that this thing, this supernatural um, spirit enters her life, and I think that's why he was attracted to her because he was like, because clearly this spirit, that's what it feeds off of. It feeds off of trauma because we realize that a lot of these victims all have something in common is that they had a loved one die or they experience some sort of trauma. So it's not, it's not random at all. So for Rose, it was just like, it was like a buffet, right? Because not only, now that I think about it, the reason why I think it especially was attracted to Rose was not only because she had experienced childhood trauma herself, she was kind of like taking in all the trauma for other patients. Yeah. So he was especially feeding off of that. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And she could just represent somebody who, if you're working 67 hours a week doing that type of work, you're going to burn out. Mm-hmm. And she was, she has already up to that point overextended herself. And yeah. dealing with this, you know, supernatural force, it mm-hmm. just broke, you know, mm-hmm. the dam, you know, of what she was holding. And so I think that's a lesson too is like, how much do we give to these careers? that can be so consuming based on what they involve you doing that sometimes you don't know that you're taking everything on. Yeah. So, so then there's definitely like sort of a, a conversation in this movie about capitalism. Yeah. Right. And, and how like this idea of like working, 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 and it's like, and our mental health is just not addressed. Right. Yeah. Cause it's, it's almost like this, it's almost like this catch 22, right. Because for the most part, if you want quality health care, you have to work, which yes. I just think in this country is crazy. Because you look at most other countries, you just get health care off the bat. Right. But in America, you have to have a job. You have to work a certain amount of hours, make a certain um, a certain income for you to have access to health care. Okay, you have the health care. But then when you need to make a doctor's appointment or a therapist appointment, this very job is like, oh, you don't have time. Exactly. You don't have time. Oh, well, I need to make an appointment with my therapist. What? Oh, because uh, I remember at uh, my last corporate job, if you wanted a day off, you had to ask for it like two di- two weeks in advance. Well, what if I have a mental crisis yep. at the last minute and I need my therapist, right? Oh, I have to wait two weeks to see my therapist? <laughs> no. Is, is that what you're telling me? Or just like even a physical illness? It's crazy. You know, it's just a setup. You know, it's a setup to for people to not take care of themselves mm-hmm. in the ways they should be doing and can be doing if they have the actual access to. And it just speaks to the devaluing of quality of life and not doing enough to make sure that people have the basics. You know, healthcare is a basic need. And yeah. when people aren't able to do that, you know, and be able to take care of themselves. Everything else falls apart. 
everything else falls apart. Um, and I think this movie kind of does that. When you don't take care of yourself, everything eventually falls apart. Yeah. So I, I wanted to jump to the ending of the movie um, because that was just like already I knew there was not going to be a happy ending. And yeah, and just a P.S. I love horror movies that don't have a that don't that have a tragic ending. I don't really like horror movies that have happy endings. <laughs> like, it's not a horror movie, no. Um, so basically, when Rose is Rose is on the run from the spirit, and then she decides the best way that she can protect herself and the people around her is to just isolate herself which is interesting i i because i, I want to hear your thoughts on that so she isolates herself she goes to like this old house i think it's the house her childhood home right. um it's pretty run down and then she goes there and has you know she there's not even electricity in the house so she's using like a a, a gas lamp and then that's when the spirit finds her so finally she has like this sort of memory of her mother is like it's like her mother manifests clearly we know it's a spirit or whatever and then it turns into this thing so we see the true shape of what this 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 uh spirit is that's chasing her and um yeah so there's this one specific scene where she thinks that she's escaped this she thinks that she's escaped the spirit but actually it's all in her mind right like because throughout the movie she's just having like these whole I don't even call them daydreams, but like these images or things that she, or events that she thought has happened, but they actually aren't. It's just the spirit that's messing with her. And so she's there. And so you see the spirit in this, it it sort of like looks like her mother, but much taller and just much uglier. Um, And then she basically is like, well, I'm going to face it down. And so you're like, yeah, okay. You know, this is her moment. She's finally facing her demons, so to speak. And then the, like it literally rips its face off right and then that's when we see what it looks like it's just like this horrific demonic thing and then it opens its mouth and so it's like a it's like a mouth in 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 a mouth right just yes. all grinning and then it just grabs a hold of her and then it just kind of just goes into her body just through her mouth and let me tell you something Melissa. like that image right there I was like, I think for people who are going to be like, you know, through what I've been going through, it's like, I try to explain to my friends, like how it feels, but you, but even then I feel like I don't even, even as a writer, I don't even feel like I have the words to explain like how it feels to be in my head sometimes. Right. And that image just crystallized it. Like, like that's exactly what it feels like where if you would think of that demon or that, that, that entity as like, all the grief and trauma where it is just it is just cramming itself down your throat. Yes. You know, and like you feel like you're choking on it. And I'm like, yeah, that's that's what it feels like. But yeah, like I wanted to get your thoughts. Like just going back to her decision to isolate herself. Like, cause I feel like that's what people who are depressed or whatever, like they usually try to um, separate themselves because throughout the movie we start to see her. She she separates herself from her older sister. She breaks up with her boyfriend. She breaks up with her therapist. Like where it's just like it, there's these levels where she's it, like she's just slowly isolating herself. Right, and I think she isolates herself because she feels like she she has no control. You know, like with the scene of the birthday party where everyone thought that she she's the one who you know, gave her nephew the dead cat. 
Mm-hmm. She's like, no, I didn't do that. I didn't do that. Or when she tried to talk to her sister and I think she just felt so misunderstood and nobody knew, nobody could see what she was saying. Mm-hmm. You know, that she felt that isolating was the way to get away from everything and to not hurt other people. Because, you know, she had this, I guess one of her, like you said, not daydream, but just like this vivid dream of her killing her one of her patients. You know, to kind of release the demon, you know, release the spirit from her and have it onto him. Like she understood that if she didn't isolate, she could do some irreparable harm, you know, in some way she performed. So I saw the isolation as a way of protecting her from carrying out the wishes of the spirit. Yeah. You know, in a way. But to the point that you were also making and seeing the spirit go into her, like when it's in like in its true form, go into her. That just reminded me of grief, like being consumed, literally yeah. consumed by grief, you know, and the pain of that and not knowing, you know, how to escape it once it has a hold of you. I think that what for me, that particular scene represented, like it made me think about like the first year of my grandmother dying and just the way that I think like the first maybe three months, especially just how consumed I was with the grief, with the pain, just never ending, just, you know, I'm someone who's had surgeries due to my disability and nothing compared to that level of pain. Wow. You know, I'm so nothing, glad I'm so glad nothing compared to that. I've had, surgeries on my back on my legs I've had broken bones no pain I have endured measures up to grief pain yeah and so that scene just was like a representation of that for me like just the overarching being consumed by this force by these feelings and and it taking over like that's real that is so real and I don't think we talk about that enough or get a great depiction of that like we did in Smile. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because this, there's this idea that like, because I think the thing in, in American culture, like we're still trying to get to the place that we understand that like mental and emotional pain is just as valid as physical pain. Yes. Right? Like it's always oh, all in your head, right? Everybody says that. Oh, it's all in your head. Oh, just shake it off. Or you're just feeling the blues or whatever. And it's and it's funny that you said that. And I, I so related to what you just said because it was like, you know, like in the past two years, I've had three surgeries. I my first surgery, I had my fibroids removed. The second one, I had to get a hemor uh, uh it was a hernia from the result of the first surgery that they had to fix. So I had that. Right. And then and then last year I had the cancer scare where they found precancerous cells and so I had to have a lumpectomy girl listen all three of them you could my friends and, and and my partner at the time will all tell you that I was freaking out like my first surgery I had never ever had a surgery before and I was like I'm gonna die on this surgery table I'm not gonna wake up like all of these things that was t- but I got through it right and it was right. like okay okay but it's like emotional pain in, is a way like I can deal with physical pain in some ways yeah. like I know like okay you take a heating pad or here's this medication or here's that but like emotional and mental pain like i am still trying to figure out how to deal with that no it's never it just- ending right with the physical pain at least there would be either some 
healing or you can, you know, do things to ease the pain if it's not going away physically. But the emotional, mental pain is it's always there and it's always going to be there. It's always going to linger with something. And again, it take it may take something to trigger it, but it's always lurking in the background in a way. And, you, and you're not going to be able to escape it. It's inescapable. Yeah. yeah. It's true. inescapable. Guess, like for me, I'm not saying one is worse than the other. I'm saying both no. of them are equally yes. painful. Yeah. Right. Right. But they function differently as how they manifest into you when they first happen. And then over time, yeah. you know, over time, you know, like I said, with some physical pain, you know, it may get better. It may be stationary. It may be worse, but there may, it's, you know, our society they know what to do with physical pain. They have no idea what to do with the hidden pain of like mental and emotional, you know? So it's easier, quote unquote, to treat one versus the other and not understand the significance of when we don't have the proper tools, we don't give the proper resources and the space for people to engage with the hidden pain that we have of emotional and mental. The realities of them can be, just as impactful as the physical pain, yeah. you know, and we have to treat both with the same seriousness and attention so that we are not fully consumed, going back to being consumed again, being consumed by either one. So significantly that we cannot function. We do not know how to care for ourselves or like with Rose and Smile, it's being caught up in this thing that you, that no one else sees but you and you have no idea what it is but it is now your life. Yeah, yeah. And and I remember, uh, <laughs> uh, I, you know, when I was first starting therapy and everything, and I was just sort of like, you know, that thing where we talked about benchmarks. And at one yes. point I was like, okay, well, it's been two months since the breakup, uh, three months. I was like, how come I'm not feeling better, right? Like, because that's the approach that I was having towards it. Right. And he was like, let me ask you something. He was like, if you had a friend of yours who got into a really awful car crash and they had like, you know, crushed their kneecap, right? And needed therapy and everything. Would you go to them like two months from now? Like, how come you're not walking right? You should have, you should be running around by now. Like mm-hmm. you, you've been taking, you've been getting physical therapy. How come you're not getting better? He was like, you would never tell somebody that because exactly. again, in American culture, we understand physical pain, right. right? But like, so he was like, so why would you ask yourself that emotionally? Like it's, it, he was like, it's a wound. It's just yes. mentally and emotionally. So you can't apply the same, you know, he was like the same care and empathy that you would have somebody that was injured physically. That's how you have to approach yourself and people in your life who've experienced an emotional injury or a a mental injury or or mental health challenges. You don't expect them. There's you're not giving them a timeline right together, which is interesting because there was a scene in the movie. Well, going back to that, there was a scene where when she broke up with her boyfriend, her boyfriend did seem to be a little impatient with her. Yes. Right. Like, what is wrong with you? And then I love what she said. She snapped to him again, trauma response. But there was truth in what she was saying. She was like, you just want everything to be perfect. Everything is like the relationship. You're fine with the relationship when I'm I'm happy and I'm the loving girlfriend and everything. And now that I'm going through some crisis, like it was almost like she was like, why can't you be there for me? Yes. I thought that was really interesting. Yes. And people don't know what to do with pain, trauma, grief. They don't know because they want to fix it. Yes, especially men. Yeah, <laughs> yes. 
<laughs> yes. Really people want to fix it, you know, and people expect you to be, like you would say, at those benchmarks over time. It's like, no, there is no benchmark when it comes to grief, when it comes to emotional, mental pain and trauma, things of that nature. There are no benchmarks. You are just doing your best every day, no matter what that may look like and how you're handling it and growing with it and so forth. And I think that's the frustration part about society is that we want people to just snap out of it and yeah. be better for our comfort. We're not thinking about nobody else. We're not thinking about how that person may be dealing with it. We think about our own uncomfortable nature of seeing this person going through something that we cannot help them with. We yeah. cannot control or at least think we can. And it's really a projection. That's a projection of helplessness on our end in seeing someone that we care about going through something that we cannot prevent, we cannot stop, we, we don't have a say-so over. And that's something we have to recognize if we're going to be a support for people who have gone through trauma or go, going through grieving or some other hidden pain is that we have to be mindful of our own projection as to what that quote-unquote should look like and where they quote-unquote should be based on how we think we would be. Yeah. That's true. That is very true. Well, I think we will end it right there. <laughs> oh, so, this has been great. Yeah, thank you. so. And I have to tell you that, like, just, like, even talking to you, like, I'm feeling healing happening in that, you know, because it's like, you know, when things happen to you, you feel like there's a shame where you feel like, yes. oh, my God, it's my fault, and whatever. And you just sometimes don't even want to talk about it because then it, it almost feels like you talking about it. It's almost like you're indicting yourself all over again, you know? Yes. Yes. And then I think it's, it's great. Like when you can just say like, this is the thing that hurt me. Like this is, this, this is what it is. And hopefully I hope people who listen and thank you so much, Melissa. I I'm hoping that people who listen to this podcast, hopefully whatever journey that they're on, hopefully that they'll, they'll get something out of it too. Yes. And I do want to say to the point you're making that there is no shame in how you're feeling, you know, how you're, how you feel is valid, no matter how long it's been or how deep the hurt is, you know, that pain is valid. And to not be ashamed or to feel like something is wrong when it's not, it's just a part of, being human. And I think sometimes we have to find ways to recognize our own humanity in a world that wants to strip us of that, it seems like from every corner. <laughs>